0: Welcome to Wisdom Trek with Gramps. I am Guthrie Chamberlain, and we are on day 2231 of our trek. The purpose of Wisdom Trek is to create a legacy of wisdom, to seek out discernment and insights, and to boldly grow where few have chosen to grow before. We are continuing with the messages I have delivered at Putnam Congregational Church over the past couple of years. This is the third of a 25-week message series covering the book of Hebrews. The message is titled, Subjection, suffering, and sanctification. I pray that it will be a conduit of learning and encouragement for you. Hebrews chapter two, verses five through 18. Now last week in our extended series on the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, our focus was not to drift away from that spiritual foundation. They will be reading Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 18, as we go throughout the message. But if you want to turn to page 1864 in your Pew Bibles, um, that'll pre- cue you up as we go through the message today. So, first, what's, that's a question. What is perspective? Perspective. That is a point of view that we might have about something. And that's what the first century Hebrews, readers of Hebrews needed. And we all need that as we face the tsunami of sufferings in our lives. I don't think any of us have been exempt from suffering. This life is full of it, it seems. But we need to recognize where we are in God, where we are in God's story, and trust Him, that pioneer and perfecter of our faith, that it will bring this world, and all of us who are as faithful followers to a good and glorious end. And the remainder of Hebrews chapter two today provides that perspective, that point of view, that although we might suffer in this life, we have something that's much greater as we move forward in the life to come. Now, following the comments regarding angels in chapter one, and then we had last week a strong warning to guard against neglecting so great a salvation in chapter two, verses one through four, The writer of Hebrew returns to the discussion about angels. But this time it's in relationship of angels to humanity. At the beginning of God's story, humans were originally designed to exercise domain over his created world. He created the world specifically for us, his caretakers of this world. But on this side of Genesis chapter 3, after the fall of humanity, the original intention for men and women had been suspended and we are now subject to that suffering and effects of a world that's been cursed. However, the writer of Hebrew pulls back that curtain for us just a little bit, and he gives us a teaser trailer of the future that we'll have with the ultimate Son of Man, that is Jesus Christ, who will lead the redeemed to realize their full potential in God and within God's plan. Coming to the rescue, Jesus Christ will restore to humanity What was lost in Adam? Until then, we're stuck sometimes with a bleak scene characterized by suffering. Even though, amid this suffering, we have to understand that God is working all things together for our good and his glory, as we're told in Romans chapter 8, verse 28. Until Christ comes and establishes his new global Eden, that is the finalization of his kingdom here on earth, we can expect at times to go through suffering. And sometimes it will be long and arduous and often painful project, uh, process that brings us into sanctification. Sanctification is becoming more like Christ. So let's read first Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. It is not to angels that He has subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking. But there is a place where someone has testified in this place He quotes Hebrews chapter eight, verses four through six. He says, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? A son of man that you care for him. You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under their feet. In putting everything under them, which is talking about humans, God left nothing that was not subject to them. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to them. So we haven't realized our full potential yet. As you read Hebrews chapter 1, verse verse 14, I'll illustrate with these cups. I looked for Lego blocks, but I didn't have anything that matched or was large enough for us to see. So these are three cups. You see two different colors, blue on both ends. This is Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14. This one in the middle is Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. And then this is Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 18. So we see it. In scripture, in the Bible, written like this. But what the author of Hebrews is, is he's taking the center one out and he's putting them together. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14, to Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 18. And that is what we're looking at today. The author refers to ministering spirits in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14. For those who are in service to minister to us, those who will inherit salvation. And then in five, eight, or chapter 2, verse 5, he mentions angels again, referring to the world about which we are speaking, connecting the readers not to the warnings of chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, but back to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14. He's connecting those two scriptures together. He suggests that the warning passage in between there should be understood to be subordinate, but yet inamentally important, as if the author is referring to... A timeout. Like a referee that would go onto a football field and go, <whistles> everybody awake now? He says, timeout! Stop your play. We have something to talk about. He marches onto the field and points out an actual or a potential infraction and then warns the players that if they continue with that wrong move, it could lead to their disqualification. And that's what Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4 is a timeout saying, the angels are ministering to you, but time out. Be warned not to neglect so great a salvation. And then he steps back off the field and goes, play ball. That's actually baseball instead of football, but you get the point. That he's taken back up where he left off there. So the inheritors of salvation accomplished by Christ. We as humans are called not the angels, but humans are called to tend to this earth. God never gave dominion of this world to the angels. Although, as we studied when we had that series on what does God want, that the Tower of Babel, that God took part of His divine counsel and appointed them over nations, but that was only for a period of time until Christ returned to earth that very first time, where God took back all the nations under Jesus Christ. That dominion position, that responsibility and authority resided in us, his unique imagers. The crowning work of his creation because he made the earth and everything in it. And then he made man, humankind, and says, you are to control and rule this earth. That is your responsibility. It describes this in Genesis chapter 1, verses 27 through 30, that specific plan and purpose for humankind, but that was in our pre-fall condition. Before the fall in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve were placed on the path of realizing their high calling. They started out in the Garden of Eden, and they had a lot of work ahead of them. It just wasn't to remain there in their paradise. They'd been endowed with, with a purity and intellect, equipped to carry out the labor that God had called them to do. But they were to do it in perfect submission to God. Had they remained obedient to God, They would have continued filling and subduing the earth until that Garden of Eden became a global Eden. And that was his purpose for Adam and Eve. That was their role. The scope of their dominion initially was intended to be the entire world. And it's written in Psalm chapter 8, verses 3 through 8. And if you'll turn to your bulletin insert on the side, it says subjection, suffering, and sanctification on it. The author of Hebrew later quotes this in his passage, and this is King David, or probably could have been before David was king as he is out tending his sheep in the field. He says, when I look at the night sky and see the work of his fingers, the moon and the stars you set in place, what are mere mortals that you should think about them, human beings that you should care for them? Yet you made them only a little lower than God and crowned them with glory and honor. You gave them charge over everything you made, putting all things under their authority: the flocks and the herds, all the wild animals, the birds of the sky, the fish in the sea, and every that thing that swims in the ocean's currents. Can you imagine King David standing on that hillside his sheep around him, looking up to the billions of stars, not affected by light pollution then? And seeing the magnitude of what God had created. God's work was an unfathomable creation, all held together by his inestimable power. As overwhelming magnitude probably dizzied David's mind, he began to ponder on Genesis chapter 1. We humans were created to rule over all of this, God made this creation for us. And he would be right. That's good theology. David was rightly astounded with the honor that we humans were crowned with to take care of God's created world. That's why he created human beings, to tend to that. But soon, David's eyes would have returned to the reality of his present world. He'd look at the smelly sheep. He'd be fearful of the lion and the bear and the wolves coming and attacking the sheep. And he would be reminded that the paradise that he sees now has been infested by thorns and thistles. Something happened after Genesis chapter 1, that turned God's intended world upside down, and it was the fall of humanity. Now, the author of Hebrew grasped the glory of God's original creation and the tragedy of humans in their lost dominion. Through all things, without exception, we have been subject to that choice that Adam and Eve made. And our current situation, because of this, looks somewhat bleak. Humans were meant to have dominion over the entire world but that we do not, not at this point. Instead, they are creatures frustrated by our circumstances, defeated by our temptations, and surrounded by our own weaknesses. The ones who should be free are now bound, and the ones who should be rulers have become slaves of their own sinfulness. Indeed, the fall was an utter disaster, plunging humanity into chaos, confusion, defeat, and death. As a result, humankind suffered loss on every imaginable way. Intellectually, psychologically, morally, physically, emotionally, and indeed, we suffer spiritually. In plucking that fruit from that tree, Adam and Eve took a bite out of it. I decided not to bite the apple up here because I didn't want juice from drooling down my chin. But they took a bite out of that apple and made a choice. Encouraged by an angelic being, who also chose to disobey God, they made a choice, being tricked into think, thinking that they would be like God. Instead, they fell from the trajectory of triumph and became victims of the creation that they were meant to rule over. As God cursed the world, then we had to suffer in that cursed world. God cursed Satan and he cursed the world, but he did not curse Adam and Eve, but we suffer under that curse that Adam and Eve was plagued by. But let's not lose sight of the author of Hebrews here. And he leads into the argument, because he wrote on, he said, Yet, at this present, we do not see everything subject to them. Those three little letters, yet, Y-E-T. Remember, in verse 5, was the view of toward the future. It says, It is not the angels that he has subjected to the world to come, about which we are speaking, the world to come, he's speaking of here. The kingdom of God is already, when Christ was here on earth, he established the kingdom of God. And he says the kingdom of God is here, but it's not yet complete. There's three little word, letters, yet. Not yet complete. Already, but not yet. If you look at the last phrase on your bulletin insert on that same side, God still has a glorious plan for restoring rule over creation back to humanity. And it happened when Jesus Christ entered the world the first time, that perfect imager of God. Let's move on to verses 9 and 10. But we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything existed, should make the pioneer of our salvation perfect through what he suffered. Right now, the world is not fully subject to our authority at this point. Although, since the time of Christ, when he established God's kingdom here on earth, that kingdom is expanding. As the church expands, God's kingdom expands. It's gradually taking over the world, as was originally intended before the fall. That which we have in mind, they're still under the result of the fall today. Sin has come and robbed us of our supreme position over all creation. Humanity has fallen in Adam. But when we put our faith in Christ, we are in Christ. In Christ means that we're physically, we're genetically, we're historically part of Christ. He acted in our place. So Adam and Eve fell. Their children were fallen and their descendants were fallen. And yet we can look around and still see that trage- the result of that tragedy today in our world, the thorns and the thistles, the suffering, the illnesses that we have. As Thelma mentioned this morning, the weather is a little bit rough on our joints. And I felt it this morning too. That's part of the fall. We're subjected to the humanity, but Christ's kingdom is underway. We cannot lose sight of that. It's already here, but just not yet complete. Nevertheless, we as humans still have within ourselves a drive to conquer that God gave us to rule over this dominion. Think about it. Humans climb to the highest mountain peaks just because they're there. We launch rockets into space. We've landed on the moon. Someday we'll probably land on Mars or other planets just because we can We map out every bay and every peninsula, every island and every inlet, every river and every wasteland to satisfy our insatiable, hardwired curiosity. We dive deeper and deeper into the oceans and yet uh, discover unknown species that we didn't even realize were there. We have this building drive that says exercise dominion. The desire is still there in each of us, but the ability is partially damaged. We fall or fail most of the time, and we fail miserably almost on a daily basis. But amid that frustrating time that followed Genesis chapter three, we now see Jesus Christ in that place. He turns our attentions away from the debilitating conditions of the and renews our hope every day, when all things will be subdued when He returns. Though the Son of God was over all, the eternal with the Father, yet God made him, Jesus, who was made lower than the angels, but just for a little while. Hebrews chapter 9 tells us that, in chapter 2, verse 9. And he took us to a humble state of our place in this fallen world. And Paul wrote later in Philippians chapter 2, verse 7, he says, instead he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being, when he appeared in human form, that's what Christ did for us so that we could be like him. And not only that, he suffered death on the cross, not for his own sins, but for ours. In verse 8 says, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. But Hebrews chapter 2 verse 9 tells us, he was now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death. So that by the grace of God, we might, he might taste death for everyone. And you know what an analogy is? Where Adam and Eve took that bite of that fruit, Christ put it back together. He made it whole. And that's what he's done for our lives. He's put our lives where that sin, that we took that bite out of that fruit, just like Adam and Eve did. Christ put that bite back, as if it never happened. And that's what we are in Christ. What Adam had lost, Christ regained, but not simply for himself, his work on the cross was the triumph of the grave. Christ went from failure to, or frailty, I should say, Christ went from frailty to perfection. He became the pioneer of our salvation, bringing many sons and daughters to glory, as verse 10 tells us. And when we're aligned with him by faith and united with him by that indwelling Holy Spirit, we begin to regain that which was lost in Adam. Christ became just like us so we could be lifted up to be more like him. This gives us an entirely new perspective, entirely new point of view that we have. We see the ideal, we see the actual, and we see the possible. We know what the ideal was before Adam and Eve sinned, they were to take care of and expand the Garden of Eden into a global Eden. But we see the actual every day we experience it, the pains and the agonies that we have because we're divested of the glory and the honor that we once had. We see that we're subject to defeat and death. We're separated from the presence of God until we turn to him. But we see in Christ everything that is still possible. We can see how we can be like. And conform to Christ not only practically in this life today, but ultimately perfectly after the resurrection and restoration of the world to come when he establishes this global Eden will be to rule and reign with Christ in that new world. Immortality will replace our mortality. Our bodies which are frail and suffering today will be replaced by immortal bodies and will have no sin and no sickness, will have no agony or pain. Let's move on to the last verses 11 through 18 of Hebrews chapter two. But the one who makes people holy, and those, which is Christ, and the ones who are being made holy, which is us, are the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters. He was saying this before the assembly of God, it says. In the assembly, the divine council of God, he says, I'm not ashamed to declare that these are my brothers and my sisters. I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here am I and the children that God has given me. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might break the power of, of him who holds the power of death. That is the devil and free those who, all who lives, are held by slavery, by the fear of death. We're held in slavery because we fear death. We fear the sickness and pain that we have. For this reason, well, for, for surely it is not the angels that he helps, but Adam's descendants. For this reason he had been made like them, fully human in every way, that, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service to God, that he might make atonement for our sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Now, in Hebrews chapter 2, in the balance of this, this passage here, the scripture shifts from a glorious future to the difficulties that we have in the here and now. Humanity had been designed to rule over the earth as God's imagers, as God's perfect imagers. And by that change, when sin entered the story, no longer capable of being perfect imagers, humans found themselves in dire need of revival or renewal, but unable to accomplish that within ourselves. Christ stepped forward into the situation to reverse that situation. He put the bite back into the, the fruit. He made it whole. As a result, Jesus tasted death for all of us. As he took what Adam and Eve did upon himself and what each of us have done upon himself, he tasted death for everyone in verse 9. But now during the time between the accomplished work of Christ when he came the first time and began the kingdom of God until he's going to make everything subject to him once again, who will one day partake of that glory, we will be with him. Because he was with us in his suffering. Nevertheless, the superior work in person of Christ puts everything, even our sufferings, into a proper perspective, a proper point of view. It's as though his suffering that Jesus did, he fully identified himself with the fallen humanity. He was morally innocent, yet he took on mortal flesh. Though deserving of glory and honor, he dwelt among those who were inglorious, and dishonored. Though worthy of life, he suffered death for us. As Hebrews chapter 2 of 11 and 12 tells us, points out that God's accomplished our sanctification by becoming a sibling of ours. He was willing to become one of us, a sibling, a brother and a sister of him. In verses 11, it says, both this one who makes people holy, which was Christ, and those who are being made holy, which is us, are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. Now, the author of Hebrews applies three more Old Testament passages to, to Christ. They're somewhat difficult for us to read as we just see pieces of the Old Testament inserted here, but this total identification is with us. Christ became like us, living in this in-between time enduring hardship. He suffered and even died. He was common to all of us. He, too, fell abandoned by God, but he trusted him through his suffering and became a testimony to this fallen world. Without their identification, he couldn't have saved us. And he couldn't have said, I understand. I know what you're going through. I know how you feel. But on the other side of the coin, Christ's suffering enables us to identify with him. So not only he identifies with us, we identify with him. As Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death, so that one way or another, I will experience the resurrection from the dead. Christ himself partook that same flesh and blood that we have. And by dying and suffering and dying, he struck the devil a death blow. He'll have no dominion over this world once again. The ancient one, that radiant one, that first deceived Adam and Eve, long ago that enslaved humanity with death. Now it's only a matter of time before Satan will be utterly destroyed. By the coming of, of God, when Jesus Christ returns a second time, he will destroy the devil. When death itself will be done away with. In the meantime... We who are enslaved by this power of sin and death can be freed from fear. We don't have to fear death because we know what's on the other side of that. That we are still reminded of our mortality every day when our joints ache, when we see suffering in our family members and our loved ones. We have earthly suffering. The superiority of the work and in, in person of Christ is superiority over sin, over Satan, and over our suffering. He gives us hope and confidence as we press on every day. One saying I liked is, we need to keep moving forward because we have a higher hope, a higher calling than what we see here on earth. And not only has Christ given us hope, he also gives us help. As we're told in John chapter 16, verse 7, the Holy Spirit was sent to be our comforter and helper. helper. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 29, Paul wrote that we are spiritually Abraham's descendants, anyone who belongs to Christ. And Paul said in Galatians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, and because we are his children, God has sent his spirit to, of his son into our hearts, prompting us to call out, Abba, Father. Now, you are no longer a slave to God, but God's own child. And since you are his child, you have been made his heir. We are heirs of Christ, or heirs of God, brothers and sisters of Christ, so when Christ came into our lives, the Spirit came into our hearts, this was the blessing that we can only experience by redeemed humanity. The angels don't have that same blessing as we have, because they were not redeemed by the blood of Christ. Christ became one of us. Christ made, all things, made us like him in all things. Our fate, Christ became part of our suffering and death. But we became his fate his fate was resurrection and glory and that will become ours in this way christ became our mediator our merciful and faithful high priest as it says in verse 17 and when we suffer he understands when we succumb to this world's temptations and when we fall flat on our faces he doesn't rub our face in that muck of temptation that muck of transgressions that we have instead he made that once and all propitiation for our sins and the word Propitiation means an offering that turns away or satisfies that divine wrath against sin. The price for our sin has been fully paid. As Romans chapter 8, verse 1 tells us, so now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. Besides all the past payment for our sins, Christ is actively helping us in our temptation and our suffering. Through his intimate association with us, in verse 18 it says, because he himself suffered, He was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Therefore, he steps into our transgressions and our temptations, not to condemn us, though, but to help us. Whenever we're tempted, we need to cry out for help. Jesus' ears are tuned to those who are being tempted, and he's quick to run to our side as our brother and our sister to deliver us. We eagerly wait for the day when all things will be restored to Christ the way that they were meant to be so we can endure the trials and temptations of this world knowing that his life, that he is our faithful high priest, who is was superior over suffering in his person and work. So what's the application for today's passage? If you look on the other side of your bulletin insert, the application of Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 18 is Jesus is the pioneer of perfection. Jesus is perfection. He pioneered that perfection for us. The people addressed in the book of Hebrews felt like homeless strangers, homeless refugees, wandering the streets of a worn, torn city, surrounded by piles of rubble with nowhere to turn for help. So the author of Hebrews, his purpose was to meet them in their ruined condition, to put a blanket over their shoulders, to put shoes on their feet, to give them a word of encouragement in their ears. The hope came... In the superior person and work of Christ. And we have here on this side of the bulletin insert, how to have hope in suffering. And I've given you three points today. First one is we need to focus fully on Christ. When we turn our focus away from Him, from the sad longing of the way things are today, to the sad longing of the way things are today, but when we turn to Him and the reality of things, how things, instead of how things are today. And we draw hope and strength on how things will be when Christ returns. We can focus on Jesus in times of grief, in times of loss, tragedy, doubt, disillusionment, loneliness, brokenness, and despair. It's only when we fix our eyes on Jesus like a horse with blinders on them that are only forward to Jesus will we look beyond the darkness of this world and see the sun rays on the horizon As we left Columbus last Sunday afternoon, there was a cloud cover. a thick cloud cover. And as that jet plane ascended and went through that cloud cover, and above that cloud cover was the glorious sunshine that was bright as a noonday sun. And that's what we see when we go through trials and temptations and suffering. That's that cloud layer. But beyond that cloud layer is Jesus Christ, that brilliant sunshine that we'll see and we could see every day. The second way to have hope in suffering is we need to acknowledge that Christ is our savior. Jesus alone is the pioneer of our salvation. He penned it with his very own blood. He is a pioneer, the one who trudged through the jungle and took the sword ahead of us and hacked down all the weeds and the underbrush so that we could have a clear path, a trail that we could follow him. It's a trail illuminated by the light of hope. He's defeated sin, death, and the devil. He's conquered all things that had once conquered us. But before we can partake in that glory, that hope, and that perfection, we must be spiritually united to Christ, that pioneer of perfection. And we can only do that by faith. And the third way to have hope over suffering is that we need to walk toward that perfection. After being ex- accepting Christ as our Savior by faith alone, we begin walking that path of sanctification. This is a process that sets apart sin and consecration for a life of holiness. We are set on the path toward perfection in Christ. Christ already, already accomplished that perfection for us. We just need to walk with him. Through his suffering, in his humanity, he became mortal and was raised immortal. Christ has become the only hope That we have that one day he will return and we will be like him as john wrote in a short letter the apostle john first john chapter 3 verse 2 says dear friends we are already god's children but he has not yet shown us what we will be like when christ appears but we know that we will be like him for we shall see him as he really is until then we will never be perfect in our righteousness but we can continue to grow in righteousness throughout our lives Experience that taste of glory. As Christ took the bite of death for us, we don't have to take that death. Even amid our suffering and persecution and temptation here on earth, we can have the glory that he provides for us. As Solomon wrote in Proverbs chapter 10, verse 28, the hopes of the godly result in happiness. We can have peace enjoy and, and happiness today. But he goes on to say, but the expectations of the wicked come to nothing. And that's why it's so important for us to put our faith and our hope into Christ, because the application today is how to have hope in suffering. And that's what Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 18 is all about. Now, next Sunday, we'll continue our series on our adventure through this book of Hebrews. I find it exciting. I hope that if we dig into what Christ has done for us, we can all have that hope The first seven weeks, as I mentioned, is about the crisis appearing in his person. And next week, the message will be titled, Messiah, Moses, and Me. So please read Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, in preparation for next week's message. Let us pray. Father, we do thank you. We thank you that even though we've lost our dominion here on earth, that one day it will be restored Even though we have to suffer and we're tempted on the world today and we see the ravishes of a cursed world that we have to live in, we know that one day I'll be fully restored to that new global Eden and that we'll rule and reign with you and we give you thanks that we can have this hope, Father, that we don't have to lose hope, but we can have hope in suffering because you paid it all, you became one of us so we can become like you, We thank you that you've called us brothers and sisters, your siblings, and that you're not ashamed to do so, that we can stand before God, his throne, boldly, Father, and proclaim our praise to you, our praise to God, and bring our prayers and petitions to him when we suffer, when we're tempted, when we need your strength, Father. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I pray that this message was a blessing and a time of learning from God's word. Thank you so much for allowing me to be your guide, your mentor, but most importantly, I am your friend as I serve you through the Wisdom Trek podcast and journal each day. As we take this trek of life together, let us always live abundantly, love unconditionally, listen intentionally, learn continuously, lend to others generously,